Hello and welcome to a new episode of the Retro Rankings Podcast, the only retro gaming podcast that really doesn't know what the fuck it's doing. I am Paul, as always, and let me tell you something. Today, I am drinking lingonberry wine. It's a sweet wine from Lautenbach's Orchard Country up in beautiful Door County, Wisconsin. And I'm not being fancy with a bitch. I'm drinking right out of the bottle because sometimes it do be like that. There actually isn't that much left, so hence why I'm drinking it out of the bottle. Anyway, so what is up with you guys? I don't know. Um, I actually did not check my email the last <laughs> week. So... <laughs> I kind of uh, didn't uh, prepare that part of it uh, to see if there's anything in there. But, um, uh, and it's mostly because I was doing potation rotation stuff on my personal email. I am working on something. I am working on having, uh, there's going to be a guest on next month, finally. Um, now that I have time for her guests coming on and for me being a guest. Um, because I have nothing, no vacations or anything planned. I did go out of town again. Uh, if you guys are familiar with my uh, social media accounts like Instagram, uh, I went to Minneapolis for both uh, a Friday night AEW Rampage and then the AEW pay-per-view full gear the next night. I tell you something, um, Minneapolis... <laughs> um, it's changed like since the last time I've been there, like not, not in a good way. There's a lot of times where I was kind of apprehensive about being out and about. Um, so the events were good and, uh, the food that we ate, uh, was, was pretty good as well. Um, but man, I'll tell you, I'm not planning on going back to Minneapolis anytime soon. Other than that, um, like I said, um, kind of starting to get free of things here. And, um, I was doing some, some of my business email and my personal email while I was actually out on the road. Uh, so yeah, I haven't checked my email in like a week, <laughs> my, my potation rotation at gmail.com. So whatever's floating in that ether, I guess it's going to have to wait. Uh, but what else has been going on? Um, I started to, I was playing Scott Pilgrim versus the world again. Uh, kind of getting back into that uh, during my trip and also right now as far as sitting my ass down in my gaming room um, I'm playing Guardians of the Galaxy I'm trying to trying to get my way through that I also picked up the new Mario Party superstars have not dabbled in that yet however um, I'm hoping to have an episode on Potation Rotations YouTube channel very soon so, um, so that's where I'm at with video games now. Like I said, um, I usually don't go too far out into what I'm got planned for the next month, but in the month of December, I mean, it's pretty much already set. So, uh, the next episode is actually going to have a guest and you'll find out what that guest is a couple days before that episode airs. Um, and that is going to be top seven video games based on television and film. And then the episode after that is going to be like a year-end wrap-up. It's going to be my best of 2021. It's going to be what I'm looking forward to in 2022, any kind of video game news. I'll probably, you know, talk about how I'm really looking forward to Elden Ring, and I should probably take... <laughs> like some time off when that comes out, because I really, really, really want to get into Elden Ring when that comes out. Um, but I'm getting ahead of myself, but that's going to be what's going to basically be in December, those two episodes. So in that recap of 2021, I already did a best of so far halfway through the year. So um, I'm pretty sure most of those titles are probably going to stick and then some titles will make their way out and some new ones will be added. I'm not going to rehash the old. It's going to be a very quick, very quick top seven countdown. And we'll get some other 
gaming stuff in there as well then for that episode. But so that's what I'm up to. That's the plan for now. Um, and then going into January, I'm actually kind of looking at rebranding. Now there was, I kind of got lucky in a way. Um, <laughs> so the YouTube channels kind of started picking up a little bit of steam as far as uh, there's some, been some trickling of some, some subscriber upticks uh, in the last probably month and a half. Uh, but views have been way up. Um, and the reason being is because one of my videos, it was the Intellivision Amico video, um, got posted some shitboard on Discord. I might have talked about this already, um, where people would go to piss on uh, Intellivision, the Amico, Tommy Tellerico. Well, even though they came in and brigaded and downvoted that video to hell, the viewership went up and the subsequent viewership uh, was going up as well. Not like skyrocketing, I guess that's not like really what I should say, but I mean, it's been consistently better than it has been probably because of probably because that happened. Um, and then of course now YouTube took away the, the, the down uh, vote, the dislike button, which <sighs> if I was monetized, if I was making money on YouTube, I would probably stop making content if that were me uh, to boycott because that is bullshit. Um, you know, I just, for that particular video, I turned off the comments and I turned off being able to see the likes and dislikes. Uh, I just don't think that that's YouTube getting rid of the dislike button is not a good idea at all. And there is a vast majority of people, uh, people that subscribe to um, the the premium YouTube, people that uh, actually are monetized on YouTube. Um, PewDiePie, I think, was one of them that uh, spoke out against it in YouTube. So like, too bad. I don't, we don't care like how much the outcry is and how important you are to the platform. We're not going to change our minds. That seems to be as if, I mean, as of this recording, uh, the way it's going. So, but anyway, um, because I'm not like drinking as much, and I've said this before too, before the you know every you know the start of the podcast or the, the episodes on on YouTube, um, I'm thinking of kind of like rebranding. So like potation rotation would still be a thing. That's still a company. That's like a legitimate company. Like I have to like file taxes and shit for for potation rotation. So, um, but I'm thinking of like changing the name. Like this isn't potation rotation podcast, right? It's retro rankings podcast. But the Potation Rotation channels have Potation Rotation in the names, right? So I'm thinking of possibly changing the YouTube names um, and kind of getting rid of my image, which I've already done for the podcast. And I'm going to be doing that as well for YouTube. And I might be introducing something else, something new, something unique that actually has nothing to do with video games or reviewing products and video games and eating food, <laughs> though there might be some food involved, but that, that I'm still hashing that out, working that out. Um, that will be sometime next year. Hopefully the earlier, the better. It's something that I'm kind of itching to do. So that's my life. And that's the story <laughs> thus far. So anyway, let's get into this. Uh, cause it might be relatively a long episode. I say that all the time. They always end up being an hour. That was never my intention. I, my intention was these episodes would be like half hour, 45 minutes tops. So, um, but strap in. I'm just giving you a fair warning. Strap in. You're, you're in for about another hour today of the Retro Rankings Podcast. This is the top seven Nintendo Game Boy games of all time. Of course, according to me. Donkey Kong. Donkey Kong, also known as Game Boy Donkey Kong or Donkey Kong 94, was released in June 1994 by Nintendo EAD. 
It was directed by Masayuki Kamiyama and Takao Shimizu. It was produced by Shigeru Miyamoto. The game starts out with the premise of the original 1981 Donkey Kong arcade game. However, this game qualifies as both an extension and a standalone title. It features 97 stages beyond its original premise and acts as a predecessor to Mario vs. Donkey Kong and, less directly, Super Mario Bros. Deluxe and the Super Mario Advance series. Donkey Kong is the first game in the Mario franchise with specialized support for colored graphics on the Super Game Boy peripheral for the Super Nintendo Entertainment System. Its Super Game Boy border resembles the arcade cabinet of the original Donkey Kong arcade game. The game has slight audio enhancements on the Super Game Boy, and Pauline's distressed cry sounds closer to a realistic cry for help. Uh, the Super NES's sound chip supports the inclusion of voice samples, so there you go. And the credits theme was also enhanced as well. Donkey Kong is one of the earlier re-releases on the Nintendo 3DS's Virtual Console, where it was released internationally on June 2011 and in South Korea in February 2016. The story, as it goes, is the player takes on the role of Mario. The large ape Donkey Kong kidnaps Mario's lady friend Pauline and carries her off to a construction site. In a repeat of the 1981 classic arcade, Mario follows him up the highest point, and Mario uh, makes Donkey Kong fall off the platforms by pulling out the rivets that support them causing Donkey Kong to fall a height of 100 meters. I mean, it's always been 100 M, or M. There's always been the M. I'm assuming it's meters, so. Uh, reuniting Mario and Pauline, just like the events that took place 13 years prior. However, Donkey Kong unexpectedly recovers this time and takes Pauline and escapes with her into the big city with Mario in pursuit. What follows is a chase throughout many different locations. Mario fights and defeats Donkey Kong at the end of each world, but Donkey Kong always stands up again and takes Pauline to the next location. Donkey Kong is aided by many of his friends, as well as his son Donkey Kong Jr., who try to hinder Mario's progress. In the end, Donkey Kong escapes to the tower beyond Rocky Valley, where he and Mario have a confrontation at the top. After his defeat, Donkey Kong falls off the tower, but he then takes many super mushrooms to augment his size to giant proportions. Mario faces the giant Donkey Kong in an epic final battle. After the ape's final defeat, Donkey Kong falls from the tower once again as Mario and Pauline are reunited. Well, in the gameplay, um, each world has a varying amount of puzzle levels in which Mario needs to work against time to bring a key to a door to unlock it, thus advancing to the next level. The puzzles consist of building platforms and ladders and using them before they disappear, flipping switches, jumping on moving platforms, avoiding enemies, and utilizing conveyor belts. Sometimes, Donkey Kong Jr. gets in Mario's way by flipping switches or throwing poisonous mushrooms at him to shrink him. All the puzzles require the player to carefully time jumps and pay attention to the physics of the game. Donkey Kong, thus, is a cross between a platformer and a puzzle game. As well as the puzzle levels, each world has at least two battles with Donkey Kong. One takes place partway through the stage and involves Mario reaching Pauline while avoiding the debris falling on him as Donkey Kong causes an impact. The second takes place at the end of each stage and involves avoiding the barrels or other objects that Donkey Kong throws at Mario, picking them up and throwing them back at him. After beating a Donkey Kong boss level, there's a short cutscene of Mario chasing Donkey Kong while showing off how to do a special move in the game to the player. The player also gets one extra life for every 100 seconds of time they had left for the previous four levels rounded up. Each stage has a time limit in which it must be beaten. It also keeps track of the high scores for each level. Whether the player made a new record is indicated on the stage clear screen after a Donkey Kong boss fight. The current high scores can be viewed by pressing start or select. In the final tower stage, each level consists of chasing Donkey Kong and Donkey Kong Jr. to the top of the tower, avoiding their attacks, eventually trapping Jr. in a cage, and defeating a giant Donkey Kong in the final battle. Also, uh, picking up all three of Pauline's items the parasol, the hat, and the handbag, and each level will bring you to either a Wheel of Fortune-style type minigame or a slot machine minigame where you can earn additional lives. The physics in Donkey Kong are vastly different to those found in the Super Mario series. Mario's jump allows him to jump on enemies, but is not of considerable height. When falling farther than his jump height, Mario does a somersault, which gives him a little bit of momentum. If he lands on a small platform, it can cause him to roll over and slide off and fall. 
if he falls further than that, he gets stunned and is unable to move for several seconds upon hitting the ground, temporarily making him vulnerable. If he falls even farther, he lands on his head and dies upon impact with the ground. And you guys can go and see those videos on Live Leak. Mario only has one hit point. While he is carrying any item, object, or enemy, however, he cannot die. If he gets hit, instead, he drops the item and becomes invulnerable for a short amount of time. This can save Mario for most kinds of impending deaths. He even survives spikes with it. If he falls too far, however, he drops the item in midair. But what are the pros of Donkey Kong? Well, it's a nostalgia trip with lots more to love with the expanded gameplay. The puzzles can be fun to solve. It already looks and sounds great on the Game Boy, but bringing the game over to the Super Game Boy on the SNES enhances the visuals and audio as well. And uh, actual Donkey Kong boss fights. Those are pretty cool. What are the cons? It controls like arcade Donkey Kong and not like a Super Mario title, which can be disorienting at first when getting into the post-OG Donkey Kong levels. The puzzles can be challenging for casuals, thinking it's simply an expanded OG Donkey Kong. And it's relatively short, with little replay value once you know the puzzle solutions. That was number seven on my list. Donkey Kong. And a super hot. Super hot in my studio today. I've got the fan on. But I am, like, already 15 minutes in, and Starting to sweat, so I don't know what's going on. Hope I'm not coming down with something. That would not be good. That would not be good uh, for the next <laughs> couple weeks. Thanksgiving coming up here. No, not good at all. But so let's just keep moving along uh, as I as I wipe away the sweat. Six. Kirby's Dreamland. Kirby's Dreamland, known in Japan as Hoshi no Kirby, is a platform video game developed by HAL Laboratories and published by Nintendo for the Game Boy. It was released in April 1992 in Japan and in August of the same year for the North America and PAL regions. It is the first game in the Kirby series and the debut of Kirby. It created many conventions that would appear in later games in the series. Kirby's Dreamland was designed by Masahiro Sakurai and produced by Makoto Kanai who intended it to be a simple game that could be easy to pick up and play by those unfamiliar with action games. For more advanced players, he offered additional optional challenges, such as an unlockable hard mode and the ability to edit Kirby's maximum HP and starting number of lives. Kirby's Dreamland was re-released for the Nintendo 3DS via the Virtual Console in 2011. It is also one of the games included in the compilation game Kirby's Dream Collection for the Wii, released to celebrate the series' 20th anniversary. So what is Kirby's Dreamland story. On a tiny star, somewhere far, far away from Earth, there is a very special place known as Dreamland. The Dreamlanders are very happy people who use their magical sparkling stars to play and work among the heavens. That is, until one dark night when the gluttonous King Day-Day-Day and his rotten band of thieves swoop down from neighboring Mount Day-Day-Day for a midnight snack in Dreamland. Not only did they steal all their food but they stole the Dreamland's treasured sparkling stars as well. Because the Dreamlanders didn't have the sparkling stars to gather food anymore, they began to get very hungry. Suddenly, a spry little boy named Kirby happened along and said, Don't worry, I'll get your food and your sparkling stars back. With these words, Kirby sets off on his quest toward the dreaded Mount Day-Day. Alright. The gameplay. Kirby's Dreamland operates similarly to other platformers during the 8-bit and 16-bit era of video games. Kirby must head toward the goal and at each end of the level while jumping over obstacles and defeating enemies. Kirby can also fly, but cannot leave the screen, though doing so. Like most games in the 1980s and early 1990s, the player can accumulate points as they defeat enemies and collect items. The player is rewarded an extra life by means of gathering enough points. However... The game lacks a save function, so scores are not recorded. 
All levels are played on a two-dimensional plane, allowing the player to move only left, right, up, and down. Kirby's main technique is his ability to inhale his opponents and items. When Kirby inhales an enemy or object, it remains in his mouth. At that point, Kirby can either spit it out like a projectile in the form of a star that causes damage to anything in its path, or simply swallow it and defeat it altogether. When food is inhaled, it is swallowed right away and will heal Kirby if he has any damage. The concept of flying and eating in a platformer was brand spanking new at the time. Unlike future games, Kirby does not gain new powers upon swallowing enemies that hold special abilities. However, spicy curry and mint leaves can be found throughout the game, allowing Kirby to spit fireballs and air puffs, respectively, for a short time. Kirby can also occasionally find bomb and mic items, the former of which damages enemies in front of Kirby when exhaled, and the latter of which damages all enemies on screen when exhaled. And the controls here are pretty simple. Up to fly and use doorways, down to crouch and swallow, A to jump, B to inhale or exhale, and, uh, you know, acquire any kind of the bomb and mic item type powers, special spicy curry mint leaves, that kind of shit. Simple enough. What are the pros of Kirby here? Uh, it's an enjoyable platforming game of all ages. The graphics are nice and crisp for a Game Boy game and still hold up quite well to this day. The controls are basic and well-balanced. What are the cons? It's really short, and sometimes you can get through the entire campaign in less than an hour. It also is too easy for players in the casual plus category. And while the abilities mechanic um, is missing, uh, it uh, the fact that it is overall just doesn't add substance to the game. And it just sometimes feels flat. So that is it. Kirby's Dreamland, number six on my list. Little recommendation. Even though Kirby's Dreamland is one of the better games to play on the Game Boy, it's not the best Kirby game. There are better Kirby games out there, especially the ones where you can actually inhale and gain abilities. Um, those are super fun. So I suggest Kirby is one of my favorite series of all time. I'll get there eventually. Uh, as far as talking about overall series of games. Um, but it is one of my favorite series. I can't wait to see what's happening with this 3D open world, it looks like, Kirby game uh, coming out, um, I don't know, in the next year or so. Um, quite excited for that, but uh, let's move right along. Five. Metroid 2 Return of Samus. Metroid 2 Return of Samus is an action-adventure game developed and published by Nintendo for the Game Boy. The first Metroid game for a handheld game console, it was released in North America in November 1991, Japan in January 1992, and in the EU in May of 1992. The game follows bounty hunter Samus Aran on her mission to eradicate the Metroids from their home planet, SR388, before the space pirates can obtain them. Players must find and exterminate the Metroids to progress. Like the original Metroid released in 86 for the NES, Metroid 2 was developed by Nintendo Research and Development 1 and was produced by Gunpei Yokoi and directed by Hiroji Kayotaki and Hiroyuki Kimura. By late 2003, it had sold 1.72 million copies worldwide. It was released on the Nintendo 3DS Virtual Console service in 2011. A sequel, Super Metroid, was released for the SNES in 1994. A remake of Metroid 2, Metroid Samus Returns, was released for the Nintendo 3DS in 2017, which I consider to be a very overlooked gem and one of the best 3DS games ever released. I-M-H-O. Uh, so what's the story here? Well, Samus lands on the desolate planet SR-388, the Metroid homeworld. Her mission is to eliminate every Metroid on the planet. Inside the labyrinthian cave system of the planet, she encounters many different hostile life forms, such as Hornodes and the Metroids. Alpha Metroids, Gamma Metroids, 
Zeta Metroids, and Omega Metroids. As Samus proceeds deeper into the planet, she is forced to eliminate every Metroid. Throughout the planet, Samus finds ancient Chozo ruins that contain upgrades for her power suit. When she finally reaches the farthest depths of the cavern, she finds a giant Queen Metroid. After a difficult battle with the Queen, Samus continues to search for her last remaining Metroids, only to discover a Metroid hatchling. Rather than attacking her, it follows her, believing Samus is its maternal figure. Seeing the potential for scientific discoveries, Samus decides not to terminate it. She returns to her ship by way of a cavern that is cleared out by the baby Metroid. After Samus' mission on SR-388 is over, she brings the last surviving Metroid to the Cirrus Space Colony to have scientists harness its power. After it is stolen by Ridley, Samus returns to Zebes to find it. This story is told in the 1994 SNES title, Super Metroid. Although Return of Samus was originally intended to be a sequel to Metroid, several newer games take place between the two titles. Uh, the Metroid Prime series takes place between Metroid and Return of Samus, placing the game sixth in the timeline. Yes, Metroid has a timeline, everybody. Gameplay. Players advance through the game by using Samus' weapons to kill a fixed number of Metroid creatures. The player is given a detector that displays the number of Metroids remaining in the area. Once all the creatures are eliminated, an earthquake occurs and the planet's lava levels decrease, allowing Samus to travel deeper through its tunnels. The Metroid creatures are encountered in different evolution stages of their development cycle. Original, Alpha, Gamma, Zeta, and Omega. The more developed an organism is, the stronger its attack. Metroid 2 features save modules located around the planet, which allow players to save the progress and continue in another session. The game features two weapons new to the Metroid series, the tri-splitting Spazer laser beam and the plasma beam, both of which would become series staples, by the way. Uh, and they pass through enemies when shot. Samus can only equip one beam at a time, however. She can switch between them by returning to where she found them at first. Metroid 2 also introduced the Space Jump, a new suit enhancement that allows Samus to jump infinitely and access otherwise unreachable areas. The game also sees the return of Samus's Morph Ball, a mode in which she curls up into a ball and travels through small tunnels. In addition, the game is the first in the series to feature the Spider Ball and Spring Ball, which will be seen in later entries as well. The Spider Ball allows Samus to climb most walls or ceilings, giving her freedom to explore both the surfaces and ceilings of caverns. And the Spring Ball gives Samus the ability to jump while curled up into her Morph Ball form. Controls here are basic for the Game Boy as well. Up aims your weapon up. Down gets you into Morph Ball form, or it aims the weapon down while jumping. The select button selects your beam or missile. A jumps, B shoots. Ah yes, the good old days of simple game controls. How you are missed. Well, I mean, when I say that, I mean like, without the knowledge of controllers ending up having like 20 buttons on them back then. You could still go back to those basic controls. Um, so, but I mean, no knowledge is sometimes good knowledge. What are the pros of Metroid 2? It's a solid Metroid platformer that is nonlinear and focused on adventuring. Given the different endings you can achieve depending upon your playtime, the game has replay value. It steps up the difficulty from Metroid in a way that feels favorable throughout the nearly single level of gameplay throughout the campaign. It's got a good story. Um, actually, the story is pretty pivotal when looking at Metroid 2D games and their timeline as a whole. What are the cons? Uh, the graphics are terrible, actually. Uh, it Making it seem like you're traversing through the same tunnels in the entirety of the game at times due to the large level design looking pretty much the same. Uh, the music and audio is pretty much trash. And uh, just... Even though this is a good game for the Game Boy, there are just better Metroid 2D games out there. Even the original Metroid, I think, is higher on the list than this one. Uh, but this is just, like I said, it's one of the Game Boy's best entries overall. So that's why Metroid 2 is number five on my list today. All right. So I got through that one without breaking a sweat. <laughs> so I must be cooling off somehow. Despite drinking some wine today, I'm still somehow cooling off as I go along. Pokemon Red and Blue.
I shit you not, these are the only two Pokemon games I've ever played. I played Red originally on the Game Boy like 25 years ago. And I played Blue via emulation probably about six years ago. That timeline's a little fuzzy. It was right around the time I started getting really into emulation um, and modding systems to emulate things. So it was probably about six years ago. Um, and it was really in the hopes playing uh, Pokemon Red was in the hopes that I would find a new sense of interest uh, in it <laughs> at, at the age of 38 that I couldn't find at the age of 19. Um, unfortunately, I can't say I found it uh, despite enjoying my time with the game. The series itself just isn't high on my priority list. Um, so that's that's my little my little side note on that. But anyway, uh, Pokemon Red and Blue were the first two international Pokemon releases in Japan. The original pair were Pocket Monsters Red and Green in February of 1996. That's when they were released, which were then followed by the enhanced version, Pocket Monsters Blue, in October of that same year. Pokemon Yellow, which was based upon the anime series, would later be released internationally in 1998. I'm getting too far ahead of myself here. Uh, internationally, the games were referred to as Pokemon, as it is a Romanized contraction of the Japanese brand Poketo Munsota, or Pocket Monsters. They are classified as role-playing video games developed by Game Freak and published by Nintendo, directed by Satoshi Tajiri, and produced by Shigeru Miyamoto, Takashi Kawaguchi, and Sunikazu Ishihara. Red and Blue were released in North America in September 1998 and Europe in October 1999. Remakes of Red and Green, Pokemon Fire Red and Leaf Green, were released for the Game Boy Advance in 2004. Red, Blue, and Yellow, in addition to Green in Japan, were released on the Nintendo 3DS Virtual Console service in 2016 as a commemoration of the franchise's 20th anniversary. So what's the story here? The player begins in their hometown of Pallet Town. After venturing alone into the tall grass, the player is stopped by Professor Oak, a famous Pokemon researcher. Professor Oak explains to the player that wild Pokemon may be living there and encountering them alone can be very dangerous. He takes the player to his laboratory where the player meets Oak's grandson, a rival aspiring Pokemon trainer. The player and the rival are both instructed to select a starter Pokemon for their travels out of Bulbasaur, Squirtle, and Charmander. Oak's grandson will always choose the Pokemon which is stronger against the player's starting Pokemon. He will then challenge the player to a Pokemon battle with their newly obtained Pokemon and will continue to battle the player at certain points throughout the games. While visiting the region cities, the player will encounter special establishments called gyms. Inside these buildings are gym leaders, each of whom the player must defeat in a Pokemon battle to obtain a total of 8 gym badges. Once the badges are acquired, the player is given permission to enter the Indigo League, which consists of the best Pokemon trainers in the region. There, the player will battle the Elite Four and finally the new champion, the player's rival. Also, throughout the game, the player will have to battle against the forces of Team Rocket, a criminal organization that abuses and uses the Pokemon for various crimes. They devise numerous plans for stealing rare Pokemon, which the player must foil. Pokemon Red and Blue take place in the region of Kanto, which is based on the real-life Kanto region in Japan. This is one distinct region, as shown in later games, with different geographical habitats for the 151 existing Pokemon species along with human-populated towns and cities and routes connecting locations with one another. Some areas are only accessible once the player learns a special ability or gains a special item. Kanto has multiple locations. Pallet Town, Viridian City, Pewter City, Cerulean City, Vermilion City, Lavender Town, Celadon City, Fuchsia City, Saffron City, Cinnabar Island, Seafoam Islands, and the Inigo Plateau. Wish I had some water right about now. Jesus Christ. Each city has a gym leader, serving as the boss in the Elite Four and final rival battle occurs at Indigo Plateau. Areas in which the player can catch Pokemon range from caves to the sea, where the kinds of Pokemon available to catch varies. So for example, Tentacool can only be caught either through fishing or when the player is in a body of water, while Zubat can only be caught in a cave. 
the controls have your D-pad moving your character and the cursor. The A button has multiple uses, such as confirming options, speaking with people, and investigating tiles. B declines choices, exit menus, which uh, you get by pressing start. And also pressing B during Pokemon Evolution to cancel said evolution. So you're probably going to be asking, what is with versions of Pokemon games? Like, what is red and what is blue? Like, what's the difference? I really think I'm entitled to an answer to that question. And as you may know, there's usually always different versions of games coming out. Pokemon games always have like two, sometimes even three versions. Well, specifically, the difference between red and blue noob is that it is a matter of monsters that are specific to each title. That is, which Pokemon can be caught and trained in blue, and which Pokemon can be caught and trained in red. I mean, you got to catch them all as the saying goes, right? So what are the pros of Pokemon Red and Blue? It's unique in its multiplayer mechanic to link up and trade Pokemon with another player. It's highly replayable. Gotta, catch, M, all. An entry-level RPG game for those who have never RPG'd before. And it's simple gameplay uh, execution of a game with both great character and story development. So what are the cons? Well, the graphics and the auto kind of suck. If you don't have someone you can trade with collecting them all, can be tedious and also take some fun out of it. And hardcore RPGers may be turned off by the simplicity and presentation of these games. I wouldn't even consider myself a hardcore RPGer. And Pokemon, like I said, just isn't for me, but for most people it is. However, it is both titles. One of the best one-two punches on the Game Boy. Kind of like your Legend of Zelda Seasons games, right? Kind of like the one-two punch. They're like the same games, but different. Yeah, the same thing here. That's, that's a pretty good way of putting it for you Legend of Zelda fans out there. Pokemon Red and Blue, number four on my list today. All right, everybody. We're more than halfway through. We are in the home stretch here. Get on with it. Yes, get on with it. Oh, I'm enjoying this scene. Get on with it. <gasps> Super Mario Land 2, six golden coins. Two Six Golden Coins is a platforming game for the Game Boy, released in Japan in October 1992, North America in November of that same year, and in Europe in January 1993. Later, for the Nintendo 3DS's Virtual Console in 2011, by the way, uh, it is the direct sequel to Super Mario Land and also marks the debut of Mario's self-proclaimed arch-rival, Wario, who would later become a recurring character in the Mario series, as well as a protagonist in his own series which there needs to be more of. Not the not the WarioWare, the actual Wario side-scrolling adventure games. Hell, even make a 3D one. Bring Wario back. And throw Waluigi in there as well. That poor bastard. It was developed by Nintendo R&D 1 and directed by Hiroji Kayotaki from Metroid 2 and Yuzuru Ogawa. It was also produced by Gunpei Yokoi. Yes, also of Metroid 2. It, it is notable for having been the last original side-scrolling Mario game until 2006's New Super Mario Brothers. That was like a whole, what, 13 to 14 years later, not including re-releases and remakes. Um, but like Super Mario Land, the game was originally excluded from the main Super Mario series by Nintendo, but was included alongside the more traditional games for the 30th anniversary of Super Mario Brothers. So it's a story, Super Mario Land 2, The Six Golden Coins. It takes place immediately following the events of Super Mario Land, while Mario was away in Sarasa Land, a jealous childhood acquaintance named Wario puts an evil spell over Mario's private island, Mario Land, brainwashing its inhabitants into believing Wario is their master and Mario is their enemy. Wario's motive behind the sudden attack is to steal Mario's castle out of desire to have a palace of his own. 
After traveling through Mario Land and collecting the six golden coins, Mario regains entry to his castle. Inside, Mario confronts and defeats Wario, who shrinks and flees, breaking his spell and causing Mario's castle to revert to its original form. Simply put. Gameplay. Unlike the gameplay of Super Mario Land 1, Super Mario Land 2's gameplay more closely resembles that of more recent Mario franchise titles just before its release. Most notably, this game replaces the Super Ball Mario with a more traditional Fire Mario and does away with Super Mario Land's vehicle levels. The screen can now scroll to the left, allowing Mario to backtrack through levels, and character sprites have significantly increased in size like those seen in Super Mario 3 and Super Mario World, enabling more focused and fast-paced action, as well as better overall visual quality of the game. The game is one of the first Mario games to have two different difficulty levels, normal and easy. The level can be chosen by picking Mario's size with the select button before picking which file to save to. Like in Super Mario World, the game's locations can be traversed via an overworld map. This gives rise to a few secrets, including shortcuts, which allow Mario to traverse the map more quickly, and a casino where Mario can gamble his coins to earn more lives. Unlike those of Super Mario World and the earlier Super Mario Bros. games, Super Mario Land 2's worlds soon have to be played linearly without requiring a hidden item or exit, although all worlds must still be cleared. The player can return to the world map from a completed level by pressing start to pause and then select. Uh, other buttons here uh, in the levels, the A button allows Mario to jump, while holding B that will make Mario run faster. Holding up during a jump makes Mario jump a little higher, and the player can pause any level with the start button. Jumping on most enemies will defeat them, as well attacking them with fireballs, a star, or hitting them with a Koopa shell. Uh, this Koopa shell, by the way, can be picked up by running into it, and then you hold B, and then you can throw it by letting it go, or you can just kick it by walking into it or jumping on top of it. Super Mario Land 2 continues a tradition established by past games and includes a plethora of level designs. For example, there are water levels through which Mario swims by tapping A. Uh, he can also swim through sap. Uh, it's a little bit slower. And movements such as walking and falling are slowed down as well. And uh, in space levels with altered gravity, uh, the jump height is increased, as is the fall time. Mario can use warp pipes in the same manner as in other games by holding down on the D-pad while standing on top of it, uh, up while jumping uh, up into one that's above his head, or left or right, of course, if they're horizontal. So, what are the pros of six golden coins? Well, everything you love about Super Mario 3 and Super Mario World, it's here in handheld form. It's got improved visuals over Super Mario Land 1 that are actually quite impressive for the Game Boy. And it's just simply an overall fun and enjoyable Mario platformer. What are the cons? Well, Mario can run. And on a small screen, with these graphics, it causes level blur. Uh, it lacks some of the fun secret shit that made Super Mario 3 and Super Mario World unique. Like I said earlier, the lack of like hidden items and exits it could have been something they could have thrown in there. Uh, and the boss battles, are they're, they're just too easy, uh, with avoiding simple predictable attacks and just jumping on the enemy just to defeat them. Uh, it's very basic Mario mechanics with the enemies. But, uh, hey, it's good enough to make number three on my list today. Super Mario Land 2, six golden coins. All right. Still good on the sweat level, everybody. Just because I know you're concerned. I know you need to know what is going on. Uh, with my, my sweat levels today. They're good. They're good. A little bit behind the knees, a little moist there. A little moist there. I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to lie, but uh, I'm not dripping anymore. So, Ew! don't worry about it. I don't need a towel. Put the towel. You can put the towel back. I'm good. I'm good. Two. The Legend of Zelda Link's Awakening. So I literally just spoke about this title at length on our last episode that covered The Legend of Zelda handheld titles. And it also came in number two on that list. I am giving things away if you haven't listened to it, but it did. 
Um, but seriously, like just go back. It's one back episode, episode 12, and you can fire it up at about the 45 minute and 30 second mark ish, somewhere around there. Uh, head back on over. Listen, listen to it. Go on and then just come back here. So what I'm going to do here is recap the pros and the cons of Link's Awakening. I'm serious. I'm not going to talk about it. I, I just did a couple weeks ago. Just go listen to it. I told you where to listen to it. So recapping the pros to Link's Awakening, it's a fine follow-up to A Link to the Past. It's like A Link to the Past in handheld form, which is a very good thing. At the time of its release, it was groundbreaking in terms of grandoise gameplay, visuals, and sound. It all still holds up very well to this day. Uh, it has a great soundtrack, and the game controls are solid. What are the cons? Well, Forget how hard it is to play a Game Boy game in the dark. A monochrome Zelda title just doesn't lend any help to what is typically a vibrant and colorful series. The game is relatively short overall, and the item switching mechanic is not for everyone, especially if you're new to the series. Okay, so you're telling me you did not go back and listen? Like I gave you, I gave you some time to go and listen, go and listen to it. Like seriously, okay. So now, now go and listen to it. Listen to that part of episode 12 like I, like I told you to. I'm going to wait again. This is your last this is your last chance. Did you do it? I'm going to trust that you did. Okay? I mean, I don't I don't you did? You didn't? I I don't know what I don't know what you're Let's just, can we just, what? I don't want to argue with you. Stop. I told you to do something and you didn't do it. You did do it. You didn't do it. I, I don't, you're really confusing me. Can you put the, can you put the Trump 2024 sign down? I, I don't, no, don't hit me with it. Just put it down. We're going to be, we're going to be getting into number one here. Okay. Yeah! Jesus fucking Christ. It's about time. One. Tetris. Tetris is a puzzle game developed and published by Nintendo for the Game Boy in 1989. It is a portable version of Alexei Pachanov's original Tetris, and it was bundled with the North American and European releases of the Game Boy itself in July 1989 and September 1990, respectively. It was not bundled in Japan, but rather sold separately, and was released there in June 1989. It was developed by Nintendo R&D1, directed by Satoru Okada, and produced by Gunpei Yokoi. Music was composed by Hirokazu Tanaka. It is the first game to have been compatible with a Game Boy Link cable. A pack and accessory that allows two Game Boy consoles to link for multiplayer purposes. A colorized remake of the game was released on the Game Boy Color titled Tetris DX. Nintendo 3DS Virtual Console version of Tetris was also released in December 2011, lacking multiplayer functionality. There's no story to Tetris, so just how about a brief history lesson in its stead? Tetris was the primary video game that involved falling tetramino pieces 
that the player must align to make an unbroken line, which subsequently disappears. So on release, uh, there's more gameplay space. If a player is unable to form an unbroken line, the play space quickly gets crowded until there's no more room and therefore the game is over. Just stacks up to the top, you're done. The game of Tetris was first programmed in 1985 within the former Soviet Union by uh, Mr. Pachinov. It ran on a machine called an Electronica 60, but was quickly ported to run on an IBM PC within the same month of its initial release. One month later, the game had been ported on the Apple II and the Commodore 64 by a programming team in Hungary. The game quickly saw interest from a software house within the UK, Andromeda, who released it within the UK and the USA in 1986, although the primary programmer, Pachinov, had not agreed to any sale or contract with. Nonetheless, Andromeda managed to copyright licensing for the title and marketed Tetris as the first game from behind the Iron Curtain. Tetris was a monumental blockbuster and had thousands of individuals hooked. I'd have to say more than thousands back then. My script says thousands. I'm going to go with millions. I think it's a bad translation. Anyway, with that, a new company, Elorg, took up negotiations on behalf of Pachinoff, and eventually the licensing rights were granted to Nintendo in 1989 for a sum of between 3 and $5 million. Nintendo quickly exerted their corporate strength, like they always fucking do, and forbid the opposing company to plug the game that Andromeda had given license to, including Atari. However, Tetris had become the most important selling game of all formats at that point, uh, of all time, at, uh, back then. Um, you know what, if, if you want an hour-long look into everything Tetris history, seriously, I, I would like to point you in the direction of the gaming historian on YouTube. Uh, it's literally Norman's magnum opus episode. Uh, the story of Tetris is what it's called, and it can be found going back about three years in his video uploads. So grab some popcorn. No, don't do it now. Just wait till I'm done. Fuck. You're pissing me off today. Just calm down. Just calm down. Gameplay. The Game Boy version of Tetris plays identically to the versions on other platforms. A pseudo-random sequence of tetraminal shapes composed of four square blocks each fall down the playing field, which is 10 blocks wide and 18 blocks high. The object of the game is to manipulate the tetraminos by moving each one sideways and rotating it by 90 degrees, uh, 90 degree units, with the aim of creating a horizontal line of blocks without gaps. When one or more such lines are created, they disappear, and the blocks above, if there's any, will move down by the number of lines cleared. As in most standard versions of Tetris, blocks do not automatically fall into open gaps when lines are cleared. As the game progresses, the tetraminos fall faster. The game ends when at least part of a tetramino extends beyond the top of the playfield when setting in place. The player can normally see which block will appear next in a window off to the side of the playing field. Uh, but this feature can be toggled on and off during the game, by the way. Uh, points are awarded based on the current level and number of lines cleared. The level increases each time the player clears 10 lines, as does the speed of falling tetraminos. The player may adjust the difficulty before beginning a game by selecting a starting level or choosing to pre-fill the play area with a given number of lines of randomly placed blocks. After completing a particular height, the player is treated to a cutscene of a rocket of various types being launched, eventually capping off with Russians dancing and the Baron shuttle being launched. This version of Tetris includes a two-player mode, in which each player's objective is to remain in play for longer than his or her opponent. Each player plays with a separate Game Boy and Tetris Game Pack, with the two consoles connected via the Game Link cable. When a player scores a double, triple, or Tetris, incomplete rows of blocks are added to the bottom of the opponent's stack, causing it to rise. <sighs> so what are the pros to Tetris on Game Boy? It, this is the Game Boy's killer app. Like, this is it. This It doesn't get any better on the Game Boy than Tetris. It's one of the best and most addicting puzzle games ever made. It's also got the legendary music. It's not a lot of the legendary music, but the music that you're familiar with in your head for Tetris, it's, it's on here. And incorporating patterns within the blocks helps with the lack of color on the Game Boy as well. Uh, the cons? Well, none. That's why it's number one on my list. I, I, I can barely find any cons. I mean, it's, it's fucking Tetris. It's one of the OG titles. 
and it's portable. Uh, you can't even give a shit that it's monochrome for crying out loud. It's it's Tetris. There's there's no nothing bad to say about it. Tetris on Game Boy, number one on my list today of top seven Game Boy games of all time. So that's gonna do it. And uh, look at we got through it about an hour, like I said. And I only just had some weird like sweat thing happen like once. I'm gonna take another swig of my lingonberry wine. Straight from the bottle. I got one more sip left. I'm going to save that to celebrate the end of this episode. But before we go, it's time to get into Portorota's player pro tip of the day. Oh, yeah. So what is Portorota player's pro tip of the day? Well, it can be a legitimate pro tip that has anything to do with any of the titles that I just talked about on this episode to help you get through the game. Maybe a cheat code, something like that. It could be bullshit. It could be nothing that you may have found out in the last episode. Or it could be something in between, like maybe a tidbit of information about something, not necessarily, you know, going to help you in the game, but might help you with a game of Trivial Pursuit, you know, something like that. So what's it going to be today? What is the pro tip? Well, the pro tip is, if you didn't know, Hell Laboratory. They kind of wanted to be the next IBM. They wanted to be better than IBM. HAL, H-A-L, is one letter better or sooner in the alphabet than IBM. H-I-A-B-L-M. Bet you didn't know that. If you did, congratulations. You're probably like the best video game historian, video game player on the planet. I bow to you. But if you didn't, there you go. There's your little trivial pursuit, little trivial tidbit of information for the day-to-day. That was Portorota Players Pro Tip of the Day. Well, that's going to do it. That's going to wrap everything up. I want to thank everybody for coming along on this adventure. Again, join us next month uh, when we're going to have a special guest on uh, on the next episode. And then we're going to wrap up the year on our second episode in December. Um, If you have any kind of quarrels or quips or you want to argue with me about what my opinions were on today's list uh, you can go ahead and email them to potationrotation at gmail.com i'm i swear to god i'm gonna look at my email i'm, I'm like like i said i'm like a week or two behind send your emails potationrotation at gmail.com everything potation rotation related uh, this podcast new episodes are uploaded as well are on www.potationrotation.com the links to the YouTube videos are there as well. All of our social media accounts are there. Everything's there. It's your one-stop shop. New merchandise. The shop is there. Click at the link at the top. Your support is appreciated. Patreon. Let's get the Patreon going. So I have an excuse to actually do blogs and special secret episode drops and stuff like that. I'm not going to do any of that shit until I get at least one supporter. And I'm not asking for a lot. I'm not. Just go check it out. That's going to be it. I'm going to get out of here, guys. It's time for me to eat dinner. See you guys next time. Later.